This podcast is the recording of the monographic happy hour event with associate professor Hanne Mogensen in conversation with assistant professor Adrian Mano, discussing Hanne Mogensen's monograph called Secrecy and Responsibility in the Era of an Epidemic, Letters from Uganda, published in July 2020. Um, I think I'd like to start off with a very short reading from the book. You write on page 52, you always thank others for their work. Thank you for working, you say when you meet someone on the path. When you greet each other in the morning, you thank each other for rising from bed. Later in the day, you thank people for working. And when you run into somebody you haven't seen for some time, you thank them for taking care of family. And so on that note, I'd like to thank you, Hannah, very much for, reading, uh, for writing this beautiful book, Secrecy and Responsibility in the Era of an Epidemic, Letters from Uganda. And thank you for allowing me into this world with you and to be able to engage with you on it. Thank you for taking care of your family, um, both that, your family here in Denmark and your family in Uganda. Thank you for taking care of your anthropology family. Um, I'm wondering if you could just start off by telling us what the book is about. Yes. Well, first of all, thank you for, for <laughs> reading it and uh, for inviting Pleasure. me to this event today. Um, and yes, it's um, it's a book about life of a Ugandan woman, Kate, and a uh, family network in Uganda uh, and their lives since the 1970s, actually. Uh, it's structured around the life, particularly of one woman, of Kate, and we hear a lot about her sisters and also about her children. And it is in many ways also about the experience of becoming very close to, to an age mate during fieldwork, an age mate, a person who grew up under very different conditions than, than I did myself. Mm. And it draws, yeah, from all this fieldwork experience from Uganda, but also very much on, on her letters that she, she sent me for many years. And um, I try also in the book to show how my understanding developed over time because I now have been involved in that network and been coming in Uganda since the mid-late 90s mm. uh, and the kind of ethical questions that is raised by the ethnographic method which somehow demands that we become involved but only yeah. to withdraw again in order to learn from our own involvement. Yeah. So it's also about doing long-term fieldwork and about ethical questions that are also relevant in relation to other fieldwork experiences. And when I first started out writing it, I didn't think of it as a book about AIDS. But uh, mm. AIDS, as you know, was omnipresent in Uganda and many parts of Africa during these years. So uh, it is also very present in, in the book. And it therefore also becomes a, a story about questions of uh, global questions of uh, responsibility and solidarity and how they end up in, in family networks like mm. this one. So it seems maybe at first to be a story about somebody who was let down to people close to her, somebody yeah. who died of AIDS at a time where she could have been saved, but mm. it is in many ways also a story about the difficulties of those people in extended African family networks who have more than others do, but who also live in settings where, where most people have, have far too little mm. and the kind of challenges they are faced with when they have to choose between relatives and uh, prioritize the survival of some over the school mm. of others and questions like that. So it's, it's also about what epidemics can do to society, to yeah. social life. Yeah, and as we heard in the introduction, I've tried to write it so that it reads like a novel or I've tried to experiment with literary techniques. I try to 
unfold people's people's lives through telling stories about telling this story about them and um I wanted their life to make sense to others, also to people who don't know anthropology. I wanted it to make sense that ancestor spirits are parts of people's lives and what it means that secrecy is played out in social life and things like that, but by showing it, mm. not explaining it. So it is an attempt to write literary anthropology and, and make use of uh, literary techniques in, in the writing, but it's not fiction, I also usually emphasize. Mm. So I think without any further ado, perhaps we should uh, have a little excerpt from the book, actually, one of Kate's letters to you, mm -hmm. um, which I'll read. This is on page 203 in the book. Um, it's a date, it's a, it's a letter that's dated October 2003. And she writes, Dear beloved Mother Akecha, it is your sad and worried daughter who writes to you after a long time. I send you many warm greetings. How are you feeling? How is your life? Here it is okay. But the problem is that I think of you all the time and I am afraid that you have problems, forgot about me, or that something has gone wrong with the letters we send to each other. You do not usually take so long without writing to me. I remember writing that you should use Jane's address, but she does not work for the same people anymore. So now I'm afraid that your letters have never arrived. All this because I do not have anywhere to settle down but keep moving around. After I wrote to you last time, I got a new job with a headmaster's family, but it only lasted until I got seriously ill again. I first went to the local clinic so that I did not have to, go, have to spend the whole day going to Tazo, but after five days the sickness got serious and then I decided to go to Tazo. When I came back in the evening, the headmaster fired me on the spot. But I have to continue going to Tazo, even if it takes a long time there, you always get some medicine to take back home with you. I hear that if you stop taking medicine, you will die fast. This time, they made me a little worried because they told me I should stop working and make sure to relax. What if I am now so weak that I get sick every time I try to work? Dear Mum, I have a question for you, and now I am very direct. Don't be too surprised. I know you have already had very many expenses on my life and health, but there is just one thing that I am interested in that can help me in very many ways. Sometimes I get sick and too weak to go to the hospital, and then it would be good if I could get the medication without going there. And it would also be good if I could call and check on Okot if he is doing well. His grandfather has a mobile phone, and these pay phones, they are very expensive. So if I had my own mobile phone, then I would take good care of it and not use it too much. It could also help me to ask questions on the radio on Tuesday when they broadcast this program called Capital Doctor with a doctor from Tazo or some other place who, an uh, who answers questions. It is in the evening from 8 to 10 p.m. and the whole country is listening to it. But I do not mind because you can tell the doctor that you do not want your voice on the radio. You can ask them anything. And they also give advice on the new medication for people with HIV. They say it can make you live for a long time, but it is very expensive. And when you start on it, you have to take it the rest of your life. If you stop it, then it will be your end. So it is probably only a good idea for people who can afford it. But it is a really good radio program. Listening to it makes me feel better. It makes me want to be strong and live positively. But it is just that I have no way to talk to the people on the radio because I have no mobile phone. So, dear mother, this is what I ask for. With respect and humility, maybe you could help me get a mobile phone. I can also contribute with some of the money in the bank. 
I've already used some of it to buy a small radio. Don't think I'm wasting your money. It is for listening to health programs. Now that is the only thing that matters in my life. I will be so very grateful if it is possible, and I will love that phone so much for the rest of my life and take better care of it than anything else I have. Sincerely yours, Kate Abu. She's a good writer, isn't she? <laughs> she is a good writer. <laughs> she is. Um, and it makes me wonder, um, you told me that you didn't know why you wrote the book. And I'm wondering if you could elaborate a little bit on that. Yes. I used to say that quite a bit when I t talked about it. And I think that what I meant was that um, I have the experience of having written it intuitively, much mm. more than my other writing, mm. without giving much thought to why or what the purpose was. And for long, I didn't think of it as an academic text. Mm. I thought of something that I just had this feeling that I wanted to write, that I had to write. So I didn't think of it as, as part of, of my work at first. Mm. Um, I guess I had a feeling that I was a part of my fieldwork experience that was never really told in the more academic texts that I wrote. Uh, and... Um, and also, to be frank, that I was a bit bored writing those texts, and I just had this feeling that was something else I wanted to write as well. Mm. But of course, I also realized with time that being an academic, I had to try and understand what I did. And I mm. also realized that there is a genre in anthropology mm. that we can refer to as literary anthropology. Mm. Or it, it has many names. Um, so... Um, yeah, so eventually I have come up with explanations about why, <laughs> why this is also anthropology. And of course, we all do that, take turns writing intuitively and then try to distance ourselves a bit from the writing and reflect on what we're doing. But I just think I had this feeling that it was more the other way around, that I, I did write it very intuitively and mm. much later in the process started reflecting on why I'd had that need to, to write in mm. this way and to write this story. So what are those those anthropological um, explanations that, that could then grow from this kind of writing? Yeah. Well, I think my motivation at first very much was this idea of wanting to communicate in a different way mm. and to make more accessible texts. Uh, but of course, I also realized soon that it's not just about communicating differently, that uh, when we start writing differently, we also explore our material in, in different ways. And I think there's a growing, or maybe we should say a renewed interest in anthropology these years in, in rethinking how we write and, and who we write for. So it was very much at first an attempt to see what can I learn to write more with literary techniques? Can I learn how to do this mm. show it, don't tell it? Can <laughs> I? Uh, uh, and that's quite a big challenge when you're trained as an academic. We're trained in explaining mostly, right? Mm. So, and um, how do you develop characters? How do you pay attention to dialogue? And, and one of the things that preoccup preoccupied me a lot while I was writing was how to develop a plot and the awareness of suspense and timing and when to deliver what kind of detail mm. and, and uh, what that can do to a text. So, as I said, I never had the ambition to write fiction, and I haven't changed what happened, when, and who said what, and uh, haven't made up events. But I have, of course, constructed a narrative, which, in a sense, we always do. I've selected sure. some conversations and some observations and situations, and I've ignored others and <laughs> tried to see how I could fit that together mm. in a plot. And then I've given priority to, to the flow of the story without explicitly engaging mm. with, with literature. Uh, but of course, as we all know, analyzing and writing are two sides of the same thing. Yeah. And um, when we write differently, we, we see different things. And stories are inherently analytical mm. as well. That narrative 
drives much of our theoretical work, maybe also in ways that we sometimes don't appreciate. And mm. analysis has narrative form, and there's no, no doubt that the plot of my story would not have been the same uh, if I had not been inspired mm. by certain anthropological concepts and debates, sure. even though I don't engage explicitly with them. So mm. yeah, I do think that Definitely what I've also learned myself is that writing literary anthropology is not just about communicating, it is also about uh, communicating differently, it's also about exploring our mm. material and exploring mm. the world in, in different ways. You say that you, that you see different things mm. uh, in, in writing this way. Can, can you say something about the kinds of insights that came to you because you wrote this way? Yeah. Um, I think that while writing it, I was conscious about... I was very inspired by Georg Zimmel and his essays on secrecy, on secrecy and lies. And I think that writing this manuscript helped me in working through and understand the depths of his discussion in a way that more traditional academic texts had not done. Hmm. But a better example is probably that once I had written the story, hmm. I realized the extent to which it was also a story that was also very much a story about the ambiguity of relationships in the yeah. field about the tension between being there and leaving the field again, about my failed attempts to help people, mm. and about my guilt over my own privileges is something that yeah. I've become very aware of in the process. I don't think that's something I had written about in any, any other text. I knew from early on, of course, that it was a story about inequality, mm. but uh, the extent to which it was also about my own unease and my own guilt over my own privileges and how that shapes what I see and what I don't mm. see and what I write, that, that I only really became aware of after having written it, yeah. I think. Yeah. That really rings a bell with me. I've also, in connection with my research on maritime piracy, run into people whose life circumstances were extremely difficult, particularly in comparison with what it was I felt like I brought to the field in my background. Um, and so I, I recognize recognize that guilt. And I, and I think you really invite us into this feeling so beautifully. Um, also, this awkwardness and, 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 and the moral dilemma that you faced in your conversation with Peter, who is um, Kate's uncle. And I'm, I'll, I'll read an excerpt from the book uh, on this interaction. It's from page 183. Kate now gave me the task to inform her uncle Peter that she was dying. I didn't really mind. That's what I remember. But it says in my notes that I was nervous. It also says that I immediately started explaining to him that I didn't ask him to take on more responsibility than he already had, but I needed his advice on how I could help her. The issue was not only my friendship with Kate, I said. It was also a question of research ethics. My involvement had resulted in her test, and I couldn't just leave her to die. But to what extent can you help her, he asked me. I had a knot in my stomach and hesitated to answer. He had a far more realistic picture of my financial situation than Kate and everyone else in the family. My situation was similar to his, with one big difference. My clan name was not a real clan name. I was a traveling anthropologist who did not have to share my wealth with a clan back home. You see, he said, now that I know she knows, I feel obligated to help her. But do you realize how much of my income I would have to spend if we started treatment for her? And how many in the family that need this treatment? Do you have any idea what an awfully difficult situation you have put us in? First by letting her test, and secondly by telling me about it. Well, that is not what this is about, I hasten to say. 
I had not thought of committing myself to antiretroviral treatment either when I agreed to help her with the test. It wasn't realistic, not quite. A few months ago, we would have not had to worry about it at all. None of us had a thousand U.S. dollars a month to spare. But the price plummeted. It had become something to consider, if not tonight, then soon. But yes, that is exactly what it is about, he interjected. Of course, I've known for a long time, without knowing for sure. But now she knows that I know, and one day she will also know about antiretroviral treatment. I haven't told anybody else, I tried, and I promised not to tell anybody. But the dilemma is still there, he said, looking down, looking gloomy, because now I know. And he also knew that I would have to tell Kate that I had told him. What did he say? Kate asked. He did not, he did not want to know, I answered. He, helped me, he had helped me get a foothold in Uganda. Now I felt the rug being pulled out from under my feet, that I had failed his confidence, that I had broken the fragile order of secrecy. I had failed to understand that it was the one thing that kept people alive and families together. I realized now how many times he had told me that he knew, without saying it and without my hearing it. Like I didn't hear it when other people, including Kate herself, had told me without saying it, even though one of the first things I learned in Uganda was that the truth can hurt, that it needs to be revealed slowly, bit by bit, and that you talk about somebody with AIDS without saying it. You respect the order of secrecy, and thereby you help people stay alive, even if they are doomed. I had known these things for a long time, but not understood them. Now the involvement of the anthropologist, the test, and the arrival of antiretroviral treatment had made her death explicit. You want me to comment on that, or you want to ask me <sighs> Christian? You know it. <laughs> you know, we've talked about this conversation so many times, and it it's such a powerful text to read. It, somehow it stands there in the room um, and caught me off guard, I have to say. Um, but I'm wondering about what, one of the things that we spoke about in, in my kitchen. We had some conversations in my kitchen about the book. Mm. And one of the things that struck me in the book was that you were, you were very present in the book, like we just heard in, in this excerpt, but you're also strikingly absent mm. in the book. Um, and you have a chapter in which you tell us about how Kate uh, interviews you. Um, and, and you say that she told me about her life through her questions for me. Um, and I just, I've, I've read a lot now, but I'm just going to read a little bit more um, that uh, shows the situation where you, you, um, you change roles. Um, you write, let us do some interviews where you ask me questions, I suggested to Kate, inspired by our first night in the village where my mother encouraged her to ask me, uh, to ask me more questions. I had given Kate a notebook and a pen and asked her to write down anything she would like to ask about me. A few days later, a conversation began, which could not be stopped. Okay, I only have a few questions, Kate said at first, looking down, focusing on the paper in her hand. Where do you come from? And what do people say? Is it okay to have a boyfriend who is younger than you? People usually say that, no, they don't say it's wrong. Usually the man is older than the woman, but not always. People don't mind. Not so much anyway. Maybe if he is much younger than the woman, then maybe somebody will start talking about it. Here in Africa, people are very much against it. My bland answer had, if nothing else, made room for her to say what she wanted to say. 
I think it's an interesting excerpt here because one of the things that I thought about when when I read that was, what is it that we learn about you by the questions that you ask Kate? Mm. Uh, we've we've seen it how 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 you learn about Kate by the questions she has for you, mm. and I'm wondering about turning this around. And and one of the things that we that we talked when we talked about the book um, that you revealed re- revealed to me was that you had been sick with cancer while you were doing this field work, um, but you don't mention it in the book. Mm. Um, and so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about about why you don't mention the fact that you also had been seriously ill. Mm. Yeah. I do remember, of course, that you uh, uh, asked me uh, this question also when we discussed the book mm. before, and I remember that I kept insisting, I repeated many <laughs> times, that uh, there was no point in mentioning that because it's not a book about me. Mm. It, it's a book about an anthropologist and her way into people's lives. So I'm there as an anthropologist, but I am apparently not so much there as a person, at least that's the point you're making. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, I, I do remember I kept saying when we discussed this on an earlier occasion that it isn't relevant because I got treatment, I survived, I was lucky, it wasn't for that long that I was seriously worried. So I was lucky compared to the people that I write about uh, in Uganda. and. Um, it's only now that you challenged me on this that I see that uh, these strong feelings against having more of myself in the manuscript pr- probably are related to, to this uh, sense of guilt or ambivalence towards mm. uh, my own privileges. Um, I didn't feel, and I don't think I do now either, that my sickness and suffering needs mm. to be compared to theirs at all. No. It only serves to underline the immense inequality between us, uh, between our access to healthcare. And of course, it could be used for exactly that, to yeah. underline that immense mm. inequality. Uh, but yes, I think you are right that um, this, what I've called here, guilt or ambivalence towards my own position, my own privileges. Uh, of course, it does mean that there are certain things we include and others we exclude, and mm. certain ways we ask people mm. about their life, mm. and maybe others that, that we don't. So uh, right. you are making me aware on that by insisting <laughs> that I'm present but actually absent <laughs> in some ways. Yeah, you know, and it really brought home the question for, about the researcher's vulnerability um, for me. and. I, one of the first things that happened when we sat there in my kitchen with the book is, is that we, you pointed out the acknowledgments in the book, um, and you told me that there was a, a secret message in them to yourself in them. And you, you wrote in the acknowledgments, every day I am reminded of how fortunate I am that he and our children, Celia, Zephyr, are in my life, and that I am here to see my children grow up. Mm. And after you pointed that out to me, you, you pointed out those last words, and you said, this is actually what the book is about. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't the first thing I said, because mm-hmm. I remember very clearly that it was what I said, because you kept insisting <laughs> that you're present, but you're actually absent. And I thought, well, what, what is this absence about? Uh, <laughs> and uh, I didn't think about it when writing it. I didn't mm-hmm. think about Raya, uh writing a book about having mm-hmm. to leave one children or about fearing right. to die. But I guess we are back to what we talked about also earlier today, mm. that uh, what is it that this kind of writing can do and what right. is it that brings forth that other kinds of writings maybe don't. And uh, as I said, that when I worked on it, I primarily thought about how to uh, 
how to write something that reads like a novel mm. or how to plot my ethnography, how to create a plot for my ethnography. And that plot was quite clear early on. She was dying and I, I failed to help her and I felt immensely guilty about that. Mm. Uh, but I think that what you're making me aware by insisting on this issue is that one thing is the plot and another thing is the, is the voice with which you write, yeah. with which you tell a story. And um, it wasn't something I thought about writing, but when looking at it now and mm. when being uh, challenged on it by <laughs> you, then uh, I think you're right that um, what drove me to write the way I did and the voice with which the story is told is which the, ter the story about a Ugandan woman who died is told is very much the voice of a woman who herself is afraid of, of dying and her children. And maybe you're right that I do shy away from looking at my own vulnerabilities and, and how they shape my text, and mm. uh, maybe many of us do. And, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> it brings back thoughts about maybe we need to revisit the representational crisis of the 1980s, and mm. they reminded us of the positions of power and mm. how they shape our text. And, and maybe we should revisit that again. Mm. And, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and in connection with con this conversation, I, I, um, I reread uh, Joel Robbins' 2013 article on the suffering slot and the shift in anthropological focus from what he refers to as the savage slot to um, the suffering slot. And, and the savage slot was, was in his uh, explanation, a, a, an attempt to try and understand people's very different lives through the lens of culture. And, and uh, when I say... Uh, us, how we should understand it. I mean, Western anthropologists, how we should understand others' lives. Mm. And as you mentioned, the representational crisis, uh, first of all, brought up questions about who are we to represent others and whose voice is doing the representing and what is represented. Mm. Um, and it was also at the same time a recognition as uh, of, of a lot of conflict, um, violence, inequality, and suffering. Um, that we were trying to describe in our work. Um, and this led to a deconstruction of, of this savage other um, and, 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 and also the objective analyst um, by default. And so and it led to this idea of, of human suffering being something that's universal. Mm. Um, uh, so, so suffering not from a cultural relativist kind of perspective. Um, but he suggests that we've actually perhaps gone too far with our focus on suffering, and, and, and now everything is about suffering. And I guess this leads me to my question here, mm -hmm. um, is, is that if suffering is, is universal, and if the ethnographic material that we generate is generated in, in relationships, then why is the anthropologist's suffering bracketed out of the equation. And I'm not saying it has to be about, that's a different conversation, but it's mm -hmm. somehow embedded in it. And I'm wondering if our sense of privilege or the privilege that you refer to and the guilt create a kind of, if you will, kind of a negative hubris that, that we are somehow beyond suffering or that in the face of others' pain that, that ours couldn't possibly be worth mentioning or being Im embedded in the story. And I'm wondering if you could say something about all those things. Yes. <laughs> Um, well, it's, it's, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. Um, it, it, it makes me think, remind me that we um, have had a discussion at the department in, mm -hmm. in, in Copenhagen in recent years about the strength of the heroic myth yeah. of the anthropologist, uh, of the field worker, who endures all kinds of dangers, and physical and emotionally, and, and how convincingly we managed to transmit that myth to, to students quite early on also. Mm -hmm. And I think, in a sense, the heroic field worker venturing into the Ugandan bush is, is also there in my book. 
but you help me see that the voice of my own vulnerabilities is, is mm -hmm. there as well. And uh, I, I think you're right that there is a need for us as researchers and I think also as teachers in our interaction with students to give to give more room to that voice. And we have realized that explicit discussions about emotional challenges um, or the lack of explicit discussions mm. about this uh, is actually a larger, larger problem for our, for our students than, than we have been aware of for a long mm. time. Mm. And I don't think I have given it much room in, uh, early, in my earlier writing either. And somehow it entered this text when trying mm. to write in, in a more literary way. So I still don't think that my disease or my fear mm. of dying is uh, necessarily important to such a book, to a book about Uganda. Mm. But the extent to which my guilt is and the extent to which uh, my guilt of privileges, my fear of dying, has sure. shaped my work, of course it is, the extent to which our vulnerabilities and, and our power relations and privileges shape what we see and what we don't see, of mm. course it is. It, it is relevant. Yeah. So if, if, if we're not being explicit about those dynamics, do you think that we're missing something? Do you think that, is there, is there an analytical perspective that, that yeah. risks being lost? Well, I think that you've made me think about it a bit, yeah. And I <laughs> think you have an interesting point in saying that by excluding our own suffering, uh, our own vulnerabilities. We, we may think that we're giving room to the suffering of mm -hmm. others, but maybe somehow we're also playing, placing ourselves above, yeah. above the one suffering. Uh, and I guess that's what I mean when I say that maybe there is a need to reconsider power relations in, in the field and in the writing. So you could ask about my book, who am I to talk about their suffering and, and what impact does it have on my choice of style and, and, and my writing and the content of the book that I look at the suffering of others through through my own suffering without ever mentioning it. Uh, so yeah, it does raise the question to me, like why did I start out wanting to write a book about the social agency and resilience mm. of, of a young Ugandan woman and then I end up writing about her suffering? And is that how she would have told the story herself if she had been mm. editing her own letters and, and our interviews? Mm. So uh, I guess the question that you are raising is that when I'm so busy saying it's not about me and it's <laughs> not about my fear, then maybe I do end up misconstruing aspects of, uh, of her life and downplaying her resilience. I haven't thought through it, but I think mm. you are raising some important questions about that. I mean, I will say that I think that her resilience is also quite clear in the book it's mm. it's it maybe it's a question of, of of balance or ratio or or something like that but but i th she appears as a, an extremely resourceful person as well mm. and her whole family as well yeah. um but it also for me raises the question now coming back to to the style of writing and this mm. ethnographic novel or or literary tool if if writing in this way maybe is helpful um, mm. to us, you know, mm. when we go out into the field and, and, and do research in contexts that can be emotionally quite trying and we're the recipient mm. and the co-producers of stories that are difficult, whether writing in this narrative style is actually a, a, a way to tell these horrible stories in a mm. way that is more kind or caring also to the field, but also to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's good reason, and, and a lot of people do 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 that. Uh, also, a lot of anthropologists do make use of, of other ways of writing as well. But it, it, literary writing can help us uh, engage emotions and senses mm -hmm. in uh, in a different way, and and maybe to explore ideas about the human condition mm -hmm. and things that are difficult and, and inadequately expressed in, in in more academic writing. 
so yeah, I do think it's an example of what it is that when, when we start writing about our material in different ways, then, then we do see different things mm. and, and, and we can do something with those we call horrible stories mm. that maybe would have otherwise left out or used mm. for something else. And uh, as, as we all know, we tell stories about life in order to, to make sense of life. Writing is about sense-making. Right. And this book is very different from the rest of your authorship in, as a literary work. Um, and we've already spoken about your illness and also illness in your family. And, and when I started the book, I was maybe I was a bit primed to look for some of these connections between your fear and loss and the fears that Kate was dealing with. Um, and there are places where it really sort of jumped out to me off the page um, but it's also an exercise in making sense of life, both for Kate and, and for you, it, it seems to me. Um, and you also engage in a discussion based on one of Kate's letters to you about how storytelling mm. is, is part of finding meaning in, in one's life and is part of one's journey. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So um, even though, as I said, I sometimes use the answer that I don't know why I wrote it, <laughs> then... then um, I forgot that uh, that I was actually very aware from early on that um, that that it was Kate's desire to tell her story that motivated me to to focus so much on her and then get the first ideas about what to use this material for. Mm. Um, it was in many ways shaped by her many letters that yeah. she sent me after my first long-term fieldwork in the country, and she continued sending these letters for mm. almost ten years mm. before she died. Uh, and they are not cited at length. Now you read one of them mm. out, but they are not mm. cited as much in this final version of the mm. book as they were in some of uh, um, in, a, in an earlier version. But I still think of them as as the backbone of the manuscript. And to answer your question, then I think that um, yeah, I was quite early on very inspired by discussions of narrative and, mm. and agents in anthropology and Paul Ricoeur, Michael Jackson, mm. and, and many others who've discussed the role of narrative in life, and that even though we do not determine the course of our lives, at least we have a saying in, mm. in defining its meaning. And I think Michael Jackson phrases it like, it stories transport us, they change our experience, they move us elsewhere in mm. life. Mm. So I wanted to show how that happened to Kate, how she used her story to become somebody, that she used me to get her story told yeah. and to learn to live with everything that had uh, happened to her so i say usually say it's not her story about her life it's mm. my story about that which happened when she chose to tell her story to yeah. me it's about the way she acted in the world mm. by choosing to tell the story and uh, so she definitely isn't a pacifist victim who's suffering <laughs> i'm documenting mm. it, it is a story about uh, she gave me her story for her involvement and she got it and it did make a difference not enough of a difference because she ended mm. up dying but mm. in some ways it did make a difference and it is also a story about about her resilience and i think um yeah something else about that is that of so so she did so but of course the point with the book is also just say that uh, we all do that all the time, of course. We all <laughs> use stories to, to act in the world. And uh, what seems to be secrets and lies and contradictions in yep. social life usually make perfect sense when we uh, pay attention to, to the stories that people try mm. to live by. And So did Kate go to school? Or she, didn't she really go <laughs> to school? That's one of the things that her sisters fight about. And they also disagree on whether her son's father is actually known and lives in the capital or whether, as Kate says herself, that he disappeared even before she gave birth. And mm. those kind of contradictions that 
you you first think that there somebody must be lying, but in a sense, contradictions <laughs> that contradictions that make sense right. when you pay attention to what stories people try to to live by. Mm. And of course, also an important part of the book is not just to show what people say, but also the importance of what they choose not to say. Mm. Um, and that not talking about Kate's sickness, mm. um, even though everybody knew about it, was a way to mm. help her tell mm. the story. She mm. wanted to tell about how she was still alive. And you already read that uh, excerpt mm. about yeah. how I actually managed to mess up things because mm. I, I tried, I made that explicit in ways I shouldn't have made it explicit. Um, yeah. And then, of course, uh, what I have later become aware mm. of and that you are making me aware of is that it is maybe also in many ways an attempt to come to terms with my guilt and with other things that have happened in my life, uh, even maybe even some of my own suffering, as you mm. make me aware of. <laughs> uh, so I hope, in other words, yeah, that it does show in the book that it's also about about uh, a story about resilience and about finding a way to act in the world and to stay alive and, mm. and to continue life even when it seems there is no continuation. Well, and I think, um, speaking of which, um, we're living in a time right now, I mean, certainly the AIDS uh, epidemic is still ongoing. Um, uh, been some great developments uh, in the past past many years that have made that a uh, different situation and made it better. Um, but we're living in a time right now where there is a, we're living in a pandemic right now. And I'm wondering what, what your book about another uh, pandemic can teach us about living in this time right now. Yeah, it was completed. The footnotes of the book was written in the first week of the lockdown last year. Wow. So I didn't think much about COVID-19 <laughs> when, uh, when I wrote the book. But yes, I very much, as I have already said, came of age in anthropology mm. in the 1990s when, when AIDS was at its height in Africa. Mm. Um, and I have followed it during a time when it mm. changed from being a death penalty to a chronic condition. Mm. That people live normal lives with also in Africa now. Um, it is, of course, a particular historical era in Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not over yet. Mm -hmm. um, treatment is now widely available, and many people do have more mm -hmm. or less normal lives. But it has had an impact on social life, on sexuality, on the healthcare system, on, on global relations and mm -hmm. questions of responsibility uh, in Africa and elsewhere. Not only a bad impact in some ways, maybe also it brought improvements to African healthcare systems, but of course, um, pandemics have long tails and it right. will probably happen this time as well with the yeah. COVID-19 pandemic and there are still questions of inequalities Absolutely. Uh, in terms of access to treatment, prevention, care and testing and yeah. uh, African countries are now heavily dependent on, on this medication produced outside of Africa and largely financed by donors mm. and I have noticed that concerns have been raised in the past year, whether many more will start dying again now because of right. the COVID-19 lockdowns and new challenges in accessing treatment. Mm. Uh, so in some ways, of course, AIDS is a completely different pandemic epidemic uh, mm. than COVID-19 because of the way it's transmitted, because mm. of who got it and how long it takes to die from it. And sure because we don't have a vaccine yet, how long it took to get the treatment right. and uh, how threatened people in the more privileged part of the world felt or, or didn't feel. Mm. Um, COVID-19 has un until now hit Europe and North America, it seems, mm. harder than Africa, but of course we don't know enough about right. what has happened in Africa. Uh, we don't know why infection rates and fatality rates have been so much lower and whether it's, it is simply a 
the question of it having gone largely, largely undetected. Mm. But I think we can say that it's a very different epidemic in the sense that Europe and North America has had to respond more and faster yeah. uh, than they had to with regard to AIDS. Um, <laughs> But of course, they are also similar in significant ways. Uh, and as you said already yourself, mm -hmm. COVID-19 is also about poverty and responsibility. Um, it's also the less privileged that die and um, pandemics just reveal social inequality and exactly. accentuates it. Yeah. Uh, both in terms of who die and how many die, but also as we of course see now in the rollout of vaccines, that right. is a big debate right now. Maybe not so much within Denmark as such, but on a global scale, definitely. Mm. And in terms of Denmark accessing vaccines as well, but mm. of course, also in terms of mm. with, will, will they reach Africa? How much? How, how soon will they reach Africa? Um, and we're also likely, I think, to see inequality pop up again um, in attempts to define what's the end point of the, uh, of the pandemic, a bit mm. like we've seen with AIDS. We think mm. it's over, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, not. It's, it's not over for everybody. <laughs> no. And uh, it will probably happen here that the yeah. privileged parts of the population wants to get back to normal or as mm. normal as possible, as fast as possible, and will declare an end to the pandemic while it's still very much on for other right. people in other parts of the world. Mm. So, and I think also another parallel, of course, is that I say this is about questions of responsibility mm. and solidarity, global how global questions end up in, in local networks. And, and, and of course, we have already seen all these kind of questions in relation to, to COVID-19 too. Is, is Denmark responsible for overburdened hospitals and the mm. lack of ventilators in, in, in Italy? Or mm, mm -hmm. Are young people responsible for old old people and uh, what is more important the uh, extension of life of an elderly woman or the small company of uh, yeah. employment of a parent of small children and who should get the vaccine first and so we have all th that's the kind of questions that pandemics rise uh, raise and um, they reveal implicit assumptions about social life and uh, about notions of responsibility mm. and, and and they change social life mm. it's did, and we are seeing also of course now that COVID-19 does so yeah in many ways there are things to learn about yeah. other epidemics we've been through even though mm. it, in some significant ways it is also very different pandemic. Mm. We could talk for a long time but we don't have that much time left yeah. and I think that I'd like to to just close with one of the I asked you we talked a lot about what kinds of excerpts would be representative of different aspects of the story but I also asked you which one did you really like writing mm -hmm. um, and so I'd like to close with that last excerpt um, and this is a this is a little excerpt about um, Kate's sisters Susie and Jane mm -hmm. and this is after Kate's death and you're back visiting them. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's from page 231. Susie called on my mobile phone to make sure I would come and see her once more before leaving the country. I passed by the market and gave her my bed sheets and other small things I would be leaving anyway. She gave me big happy smiles in return and proudly showed me the kettle she had bought to prepare breakfast. She also described her plans to build a shed of reed mats that could provide some shade from the sun. She was busy but urged me to come back two days later. She even told me what time to be there. When I arrived, she eagerly gathered some shopping bags, got hold of a taxi, and had us brought back to the small, somber room, which seemed a little less sad that day due to her cheerfulness. The walls were no longer brown. They were now covered with the newspapers I had given her a few days earlier, pasted onto the wall with a small lump of millet in each corner. Behind a curtain lay a mattress. In front of the curtain, another mattress, now covered with the sheets I had given her. 
My couch, she proudly said, and asked me to sit down. The shopping bags contained fried liver, french fries and soda. I had noticed the smell in the, in the taxi but thought it was the taxi driver driving around with his lunch. While serving the food, she explained how much money she had made serving breakfast to people in the market. Sitting on the mattress, she started telling me about her boyfriend, whom she had known for over a year, who was sweet and kind, but didn't contribute much, so she could never marry him. Our lunch and chat in her now not-so-sad home was one of the most life-affirming experiences that year. Her life was hard, but she wanted to rejoice with me over the fact that the kettle had made it a little less hard. There, she said, as we sat in the Matatu on our way to Jane's place, whom I also wanted to say goodbye to, that is the house where Comfort's father lives. I managed to catch a, catch a sight of a cluster of reddish-brown houses with iron sheet roofs surrounded by small banana palms and flowering shrubs, which unmistakably resembled other clusters of houses in the outskirts of Kampala. Are you sure? I asked. But yes, she said she was, and she even knew his name and the woman with whom he lived. Susie says Comfort's father lives down the road, I said, when we later all sat on the sun-drenched floor of Jane's Muzigo. Wouldn't it be a good idea for Comfort to get to know him? Ah, but I don't know, Jane replied doubtfully. Kate always said it was a man from Kenya. But it is true, he is the one, Susie repeated. Just wait and see how much Comfort resembles him. I think we should go ask him, I said. We can't do that, Jane said. Maybe he'll be angry with us. We don't know him at all. Yes, I know him, Susie said cheerfully. He used to come and see us when I lived with Kate. We walked a few hundred yards down the road and crossed the gutter on a narrow plank and walked along the muddy path toward a house where an elderly woman sat under a roof of banana palm leaves and peeled grains off dried cobs of maize. Did she know him? Yes, she did. Was he there? No, he wasn't. He was at work. He worked as a guard at a factory in the industrial district. If we came back late in the afternoon, he would be there. Can we? Susie asked. No, I'm on my way to the airport. And it's not good to be late for a plane? No, it's not. Susie jumped into a mata uh, matatu going back to the market. Jane caught one for me going in the direction of the city center. I should go home and do some homework, she said as a farewell greeting. Maybe you can go looking for him some other day, I managed to say before she took off. Yes, maybe, she replied. Mm. <laughs> yeah. An upbeat excerpt. Yes, <laughs> and uh, that's the end of the story. And I guess uh, the reason I said I like it is also that, uh, well, because it ends on a positive note mm -hmm. in a sense, but also on an open note. Life, mm. life is open. Yeah. <laughs> yes, maybe. <laughs> maybe. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. You can find more podcasts and keep updated on our future events by following the Danish Anthropology Association on our social media. Og husk at du kan blive en del af vores netværk ved at købe et medlemskab til foreningen gennem vores hjemmeside www.anthropologforeningen.dk.